I really got this idea in my head since I was when I was 12, and I saw this man out walking around the world. Well, I saw an article of him walking around the world, and I thought, well, boy, I didn't know you could even think of such a thing. So, <laughs> and I, I don't know what happened in my other life <laughs> where it made some deep analysis to figure out why that resonated with me. But regardless, that really tickled my fancy. And I thought, well, gee, that's how I want to go see the world. Someday I'm going to walk. Episode 79, Polly Latovsky, a 14,000-mile journey around the world on foot. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Welcome to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is Travis. I just wanted to explain a little bit about this episode. Uh, I was actually on the road in a hotel, so I had to record this episode all over my phone. So I apologize for the audio quality. It's not what you normally get out of this podcast, but I think you'll still enjoy it. Polly had so much fun information about her travel around the world uh, on foot that I wanted to make a two-parter because I didn't want to clip anything out of it. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Let's get started. Polly Latovsky sold it all and headed out west from her home in Vail, Colorado to begin her trip around the world. The kicker is she decided that walking was to be her mode of transportation. And five years later, she accomplished that goal. Polly, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. And I'm not walking right now. <laughs> That's good. I appreciate that. <laughs> so you did all of this to raise money and awareness for breast cancer around the world. What was it that made you decide to just set everything aside and take a trip around the world? I mean, that's a pretty pretty serious endeavor. Yeah, I do want to clarify, yes, breast cancer and the advocacy of that was really the final catalyst. But I really got this idea in my head since I was, when I was 12, and I saw this man out walking around the world. Well, I saw an article of him walking around the world. And I thought, well, Boy, I didn't know you could even think of such a thing. So, <laughs> and I, I don't know what happened in my other life <laughs> where it made some deep analysis to figure out why that resonated with me so much. <laughs> but regardless, that really tickled my fancy. And I thought, well, gee, that's how I want to go see the world. Someday I'm going to walk. And uh, so I'd always wanted to go do the walk. And that's when I was 12. So it took, you know, 20 plus plus years to, you know, really have it come to fruition and reality. And that is really when there was a year in my life that a number of women in my world were being diagnosed with breast cancer. And it's just, you know, it's a scary thought. And I remember one night walking home. I had this little two mile walk home every night. I always walked. I didn't own a car until I was 44 years old. Wow. Um, so I'm walking home at 10 o'clock at night just thinking about the, all the women in my world that were being diagnosed with breast cancer. And I remember exactly where I was when I had my light bulb moment. You know, that moment that we've all had when suddenly the stars are aligned and you know this is it. This is what you've been waiting for. And really all the pieces come together. And that was that I'd finally do that walk that I'd always wanted to do. And I would do it for the women of the world and 
breast cancer is something that's in every nook and cranny of the world. So that little two miles walking home that night, I started to plan my global walk for breast cancer with all the questions, as you can imagine, go swirling around in my head. So, so I, you know, I just want to make that clear because people think um, that breast cancer was the reason. And I just want to be straight up that the reason was really deep well before that. And it was really to go discover the world. And I knew I had to have focus and it, and it needed to be much bigger than just me wandering. It had to be. And so these two worlds collided is really what it is. So it was the intersection of Polly wants to go discover the world and, and figure out how it ticks. And let's feed it to the women of the world. Wow. Was that a long answer to the short question you had? <laughs> no, that was perfect. That's amazing. I didn't realize that you had had that dream since you were a little girl. I mean, was it something that was just rooted in the back of your mind or did you actually put a lot of thought into it or thought into it regularly, I should say, throughout your childhood? Well, I remember, okay, so that was 12 when that happened. And I do remember that it was constantly there, kind of like this. It, it wasn't in the forefront of my head all the time. And I don't think that I told anyone. My mom doesn't remember me ever mentioning it. And and I really think that that's because it was so far outside the box. I mean, come on, a 12-year-old girl from Minnesota in 1974, who would ever think that would really come true? So I didn't really say it out loud, you know. I didn't want to be one of those people that, you know, well, I'm going to be the first president, uh, first woman president of the United States. Well, sure you are. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> You know, I I really thought clearly, though, even as a kid, that I, I really could do this. So I, I'm not sure where that comes from. That would also take some deep analysis. But it was always there, and I never talked out loud about it. And I remember years later when I, you know, finally had my moment walking home that night, and I put a lot of research into it before I even said it out loud. And, you know, once you say it out loud, there's a reality to it. At least there is for me. And um, people don't really take you seriously when you say something like that. Yeah, they just don't. <laughs> like, oh, that's cute, you know, and a pat on the head. Um, but uh, I was clear on it. And I had, I remember one person specifically said, so wait a minute, what's the longest walk you've ever done? Like, well, <laughs> two weeks. And they say, okay, so you think you can go from two weeks to five years just like that? And I'm like, even then I thought, well, you don't take a practice round. <laughs> you know? Right, exactly. You know, <laughs> it's either you do or you don't, right? <laughs> right, I think I'll take a practice lap first and then <laughs> get clear on it. But, uh, yeah, you know, people are skeptical. And I, I'll be frank with you, you know, if people say that to me now, I'm kind of skeptical, you know? Right. So I go, yeah, right. You know, <laughs> prove prove it. Uh, so it, it, it takes a while. Once people saw that I was serious and that I did have a plan and it wasn't a flop by night, then, you know, they they were certainly supportive, including my parents. Wow. Well, you have a kind of a funny little anecdote about uh, when you first left Vail and headed west and the first person you ran across that discovered that you were walking around the world. Tell that story real quick, if you would. I think what you're talking about is is that I was five miles into my big journey 
not even that, four miles. And I was still in my own neighborhood. I was on a very familiar path, a path that I'd taken every day. And I ran into these two fishermen right off the Gore Creek, which is right outside Vail. Press with me. They said, wow, you're walking around the world. That's fantastic. When did you leave? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, uh, about 1030. (laughs) (laughs) Rolled their eyes in the back of their head. <laughs> so sure you are. <laughs> we'll see you on the yeah. way back through in about an hour. <laughs> <laughs> right. Gave me the pashaw. So I, you know, I often think of those guys thinking, I, I remember them thinking, I just can't wait until I can, you know, say that, give that answer in months right. and years, you know. Uh, I think the first time I could say, well, I've been on the road for six months. There's certain, sort of a milestone to that, sure. you know. Sure. So that was, I remember that was a big thing at the very beginning, going, I can't wait until I can say months and years. And, you know. was, and of course, once you're months and years into it, then you don't care anymore. You know, yeah, exactly. And, and you've told you know, hundreds of people about it by then, too. <laughs> That's right. But did you ever run across those guys again after when you got back? You know, I had nobody to step forward, and I certainly wouldn't remember who they are. Yeah. So, but I've, I've spoken up in. And I don't live in Vail anymore. I live in Denver, which is a couple hours away. And and uh, I've spoken up there many times. No one has stepped forward to say, yeah, I was at Fisher. Fisher oh, yeah. Four miles in. That's so, funny. What a funny little story, though. <laughs> yeah. So was there a point that you ever thought, you know what, this is crazy. I just need to turn around and cut my losses and head back. Do you know, I I promise you, I will swear on my father's grave that that never happened. And people are always surprised by that. And I was very clear. I was very, very clear from the get-go, from the time I was 12 years old and got this idea in my head, from the time that I was walking that two miles home and, and was suddenly struck by the clarity and the passion, that if I were really going to embark on this, I had to be able to accept the tough times along with the good times. And, you know, even the good times were tough. Even the good times were tough. And I I related a lot to having children. And I've never had children, so (laughs) only coming from observation. But that it's tough every single day. Every single day it's tough, but you love it. And you wouldn't give it up for anything. And that's how... A walk around the world is even the tough, the, the really great times are tough. You know, the people that you meet and the, um, you know, the new roads that you're on and the discoveries that you have. So that's how I explain it. So even when there were tough times, like 9-11 struck when I was in the very middle of my journey. And everyone was saying, what's your emergency escape plan? Do you have a plane ticket back to the U.S.? And I And I thought, no, 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 that's not the deal. And it was almost a game for me. It's like you knew tough times were coming, but you couldn't plan for them. You couldn't predict them. But I knew they were coming. So it was like a tough time would come, like 9-11, while I'm in the Muslim world. And I kind of, you know, okay, here we go. Here we go. (laughs) Buck up and do what you need to do, which for me was always, you know, restructure and reevaluate what's going on and reach out, reach out to the people around you because who is your team of people if in fact you're alone? Who is your team? You've got to have a team. 
So my team was the people that were immediately around me. And of course, my friends and family back home, whether they realized it or not. So I reached out to the, in a nutshell, the Lions Club started taking care of me and passing me village to village. Lions Clubs are the biggest volunteer organization around the world, and they really exist in every small town, village to village around the world. And in Malaysia, where I was when 9-11 struck, they're very, very well-connected, highly respected people. And so when 9-11 struck, I reached out to them and I said, listen, guys, do you think you could help me contact the International Lions Club president and ask if he would consider an international sponsor? And yeah, we'll give it a shot. I met him that night for dinner and they said he loved the idea. It's a done deal. Wow. So in fact, instead of where everyone else's mind went to 9-11 struck, she's in the Muslim world as this Jewish American woman, which, you know, get out of there. My energy went to getting my team around me and restructuring and getting a plan in place. And those are lessons that I take with me every day today. In the, in the business world, you can really take that lesson everywhere. So I'm coming back to the question that you asked me, which was, did you ever feel like really just saying, I've gotten it over my head, I'm out? <laughs> uh, the answer is no, never, not once. And that is not to say there weren't some awful, awful times, but my head went to, how do I get out of here as fast as possible and get through this? Who do I need to reach out to? It didn't get to, how do I get to the nearest airport and fly back to Colorado? Right, (laughs) right. Two very different places. And I always equated it with, I was doing this for breast cancer and the women going through breast cancer. And women going through breast cancer never have the option of quitting. They always have to dig deep. And therefore, I had to as well. So they really kept me going. These people that many of them, most of them, I haven't even met before, but they kept me going. The thought of them going through this disease. Wow, so that's a, some fantastic commitment from the from the start of it, and to be able to see that through, it says a lot about you as well. I mean, that's a that's a serious trip that you embarked on. Did you did you know in planning? Um, that it was going to take five years or did you just have a ballpark idea? Did you have a, 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 a real tight plan as far as the route you would take? I did know it would take roughly five years. It's At the end of the day, it's really a math equation. Going, okay, I can walk comfortably about 15 miles a day. And this is a long distance, not a sprint. So I knew that I had to take X amount of days off a week. So generally my path was roughly three days on, a day off, three, four days on, a day off, because I had to pace myself. So I kind of did the math and figured, yeah, this is going to take me about five years. As far as a, a route, I had like a blueprint. I had a blueprint. And there are really not a lot of countries that you can get through. There are yeah. just not a lot, believe it or not. And there are countries you can get into and out of, but you can't go through. So, and and also with an American visa versus, say, a British visa. So there have been people that walked around the world on a different visa. 
so I couldn't really use them as a template at all. <laughs> so you're right. really on your own. And if I can take you back to it was the it was around ninety seven, nineteen ninety eight that I was really doing the planning. And the world was a very different place. So for example, China was still very, very closed off and they were just starting to think about opening it up for people to come into because they really wanted the Olympics. Okay. So that's where I'm going back to. And so I remember going to the Chinese embassy and they're like, no way, can't, can't get through there. Um, so I had to re kept keep rerouting and rerouting and the world kept changing, of course, as I'm, you know, planning. And of course the internet really came to light during those, you know, really 97, 98, 99, it started coming of age and picking up speed in the early 2000s. And that's when I was walking. So things were really changing fast, um, you know, global politics as well. So I kept having to change my route. And and then, um, like I was planning on going from India through Pakistan, through Iran, into Turkey. Well, then the war breaks out. 9-11 strikes, then the Afghanistan war breaks out, and then the war in Iraq breaks out. And actually, the Daniel Pearl drama had happened. Daniel Pearl was the Wall Street journalist who was kidnapped and beheaded. Right. And that's when I was in, in India on my way to Pakistan. Oh, yeah. And, and, <laughs> of all places so, to be. <laughs> right. So I was in the middle of India then when they shut the borders down. So they shut borders down to Pakistan and Iran. And, and I had to get the, I had to fly over those then. And, you know, no great love loss, frankly, but, uh, <laughs> and it's, it's something similar had happened to everyone walking around the world. Everyone, there was four of us at the time, I think a fifth guy just finished. So, um, uh, yeah, the, the blueprint really was this, this, uh, initially a blueprint then about six months or a new continent i would figure out a path and then two months before i'd always had a plan pretty detailed plan two months in advance and then of course the day of i want to get from point a to point b and then i would talk to the locals and they'd tell me a side road so it it was constantly evolving and it was constant communication and of course the world was changing fast during those five years as well yeah. Between technology, global politics, the whole thing. Well, I think, you know, that's why I asked the question about having having an idea of how long it would take to do it. I know that many large projects I've started, people always say, well, take what you think it's going to be, you know, the, the time it's going to take to complete it and add about another 30 to 50 percent on top of that, you know. So that's why I was wondering if, you know, you, you think, well, it's going to take five years mathematically. However, you got to expect to run into these types of situations. But but you calculated for five years and you completed it in five years. Well, you know, I think I could probably take some of your advice as well, because that uh, five years included Pakistan and Iran. And then I didn't do those two. So. Sure, sure. <laughs> so that's maybe, true. Maybe uh, is that all equaled out okay? Because, <laughs> yeah, that would have probably added another year. So Yeah, that's you're true. You're probably right. That's true.
Let's talk car racks, specifically Yakima and Thule. Chances are, if you're listening to our show, you either have one, want one, or you're going to need a car rack soon. Car racks, whether on the roof or on the back, need a good set of locks to keep your gear locked down to the rack and to your car. Good news. Our new sponsor, Z-Lock, has new lock sets for all Thule and Yakima racks at about one-third less than anywhere else. These lock cores are sourced from the original manufacturer and include bonus keys. Need replacement keys or cores matched to your current lock code? Z-Lock has replacement options even if you've lost all of your keys and don't know your key number. Check this out. Z-Lock is offering Adventure Sports Podcast listeners an additional 20% off their already low prices plus free shipping. Just enter the code ADVENTURE at checkout and you'll save up to 50% off a retail. Go to zlock.com forward slash adventure. That's Z-E-L-O-C-K dot com forward slash adventure and save. This summer, introduce your kids to the power of authentic outdoor adventure. Serving school-age kids from pre-K to the 12th grade, Avid for Adventure attendees climb, paddle, bike, hike, and thrive in the outdoors. Avid for Adventure offers authentic adventure camps different from other outdoor camps. Their highly skilled and educated staff, unique adventure activities such as rock climbing, kayaking, and biking, and their focus on outdoor confidence building for young kids is what sets them apart. Learn more and sign up at www.avid4.com. Or call 22 countries, if I remember right. You went west from Vale, and then you flew over to New Zealand, and then Australia, and on from there? That's right. And then up through Southeast Asia, across India, and Turkey and Europe. Okay. Yeah. And then how many how many miles was it in the end? 14,124. <laughs> but who's counting? Right? <laughs> yeah, um, I think you might. And then, uh, and that did not include all the miles that I spent being lost. And uh, so I think I could easily add a couple thousand miles to that. So really? I, I didn't keep track of how many miles that I spent being lost. Well, you know, first of all, I don't have a sense of direction, which is comical, really. And the people that, let's say, drive with me get a kick out of that. You have no sense of direction? I'm like, yes, you have no idea what to <laughs> <laughs> around the world for me really, really was. And they get a kick out of that. Um, yeah, but uh, I was I was with these 14-year-old, very smart kids in math. And I said, hey, do a, do a math equation for me. If I walked, you know, X amount of miles per month, but I spent off path, and, you know, how many extra miles did I do? And, I forget the answer, but it was at least a couple thousand. So. Wow. But the official answer is 14,120. <laughs> that works. Well, it's really a mind-boggling thing. Um, I know I don't have an excellent sense of direction myself, and I'm, I probably rely on GPS too often. But there are, I just think about little rides or, you know, places I might go that you really have to stop and think, okay, where where am I going from here? But when you're going around the world, I mean, there are 
thousands of times when you have to stop and and gain your your sense, you know, your your reset your compass, I guess is the best way to say it, to figure out where the heck you are and where you're pointing, where are you going? You have no idea. So remember, this is before GPSs. Right. And a lot of countries, in fact, most countries don't have maps like we have here in the U.S. and certainly any developed world has. Certainly in uh, Europe, the, the maps are great and here, Australia, New Zealand, et cetera. But beyond that, there just really aren't maps or, or detailed maps anyway. Like I couldn't even find a map of India and and, re- and I had enormous support from the Lions Clubs who are very well connected and highly respected there across India. They couldn't find maps for me. There were no detailed maps at all. Now, luckily, there's really only one road in a lot of these countries. There's one road from Calcutta to Mumbai. So so I really couldn't get lost. I just had to remember, you know, turn left out of the door tomorrow, you know. But you, you want a map for more than just Direction. You want a map to say how many towns, when am I hitting a town today around lunchtime? Will I be able to find food on my route today? Um, and just figure out where you are, how much further you have to go, that kind of thing. So it wasn't just a matter of direction. Of, you know, in that regard, I was fine. So, um, yeah, it just, it just the maps alone. Oh gosh, I, I write the story in, in my book about coming into Mumbai, and Mumbai has um, no map. There's no maps there, and they don't have street signs. Well, how can I find my way around? So people would give me directions that meant nothing, because it's not like a gridded street. (laughs) All the streets are windy circles, and that's kind of thing. So I I spend hours probably getting three miles. (laughs) I can't find my way. Yeah, from what I've seen, you ask five different people and you get five different answers on where to go. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so um, I, I guess I really would like to know exactly what my mileage was, but uh, there's an official. My guidelines, well, there are Guinness Book guidelines to say what it means to walk around the world. And there were also my guidelines that I gave a promise to myself um, to meet the goals and the wants for for my walk. And the Guinness book was that you need to start and to say that you've walked around the world, you need to start and finish in the same place, which for me was Vail, Colorado, right in the heart of the Rockies. And you needed to walk across at least four continents and at least 14,000 miles. And my guidelines then were that, yes, I want to walk every step of the way, but if someone wants to come and take me to lunch, they can come and pluck me off the road and just they have to drop me off at the exact same spot. So in fact I walk every step of the way. I wasn't getting into this hardcore martyr stuff of well I gotta walk to the restaurant then if it's, it's five miles out of the way. Do you sure. see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So being silly. If someone wants to take me sightseeing, of course you can pick me up and, you know, take me in the car, this kind of thing. So it was important for me to walk every step of the way. And of course, there were hiccups along the way, like um, you couldn't, you still couldn't get through Myanmar when, when I was walking. Right. Uh, I, I still think you can. Um, and of course, like I just explained, Pakistan and Iran shut their borders down. And I think they're still shut down. And it, where I live, you know, in Denver, there's a big Iranian population and, and 
many of them have invited me to their book clubs after reading my book and such. So we all we have this kind of uh, informal group of people that say, you know, when Iran opens up and becomes more friendly, then we will all go walk across Iran together. Thing we have going. Right. So, haven't given up on it. Everyone I know that has gone through Iran, say all the British people, and um, there's, there are a lot of big bikers that go bike around the world, and they've all come through Iran. And they say the people are just fabulous. And they will just host you to death, in particular Americans. So the everyday Iranian loves Americans and wants, you know, wants to just host the heck out of them, really curious about them. So I, I, I feel uh, sort of worked off that I couldn't, in fact, go experience that. But I kept thinking, maybe another time. Another time, I, apparently I'll just do it differently. I won't see it by foot. So uh, <laughs> next time. Yeah, exactly. Next time I walk around the world. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> well, call me if you do. <laughs> no, that ain't gonna happen. Yeah, yeah I, I wouldn't blame you. Some things only need to be done once. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, how did you carry your gear, and where did you stay? Was this a backpacking trip? Did you camp? Well, that's how I had envisioned it, that I was going to have a backpack. and I mean, that's how I envisioned it since I was a kid and I was 12 years old. What, in fact, happened is for the first seven months of my walk, I had had crew support, meaning someone in a vehicle that kind of comes and restocks me with food and water and organizes the press and stuff, which was more than likely, say, through all of New Zealand, local citizens, they would organize all that. But it was never the picture in my head that I would have crew support since I was a kid. I just pictured this, that I would be doing it on my own. But I wasn't going to be a martyr about it if someone said, yeah, that sounds like fun. I think I'll go with you. And people did. So I said, okay. (laughs) Uh, the fact of the matter is, what it really turned into is that you cannot expect anyone else to have the same vision, the same dream, passion, commitment that I've had since I was 12. Right. It never really worked. It really didn't work. They had different wants and visions and commitment levels and this kind of thing. It never really worked. So I really had to get back to the picture that had always been in my head, and that was to do it alone. And that really started once I hit Australia. And how could I do it alone? I mean, you're going for weeks at a time without hitting a town in Australia. So at that point, I really got a baby buggy. And there's a company that creates baby buggies, manufactures them, called Bob. B-O-B. And it's kind of the master Mac daddy of baby strollers. <laughs> and if you haven't seen Bob Baby Strollers yet, you will now see them everywhere because they are everywhere. And they have the big sort of four-wheel drive tires on them. And, you know, you can just drive over any terrain with these baby buggies. So they took out the baby sling and, and they had some friends that designed tents and backpacks for North Face. So they had this designer uh, create this once of backpack on wheels. and put it with a Bob baby stroller. And so I naturally started calling him Bob. 
So Bob really became my buddy, my pal. And I had breast cancer survivors come and put their names on it and leave messages to other women that I might meet up the road who are going through breast cancer. And I put flags and patches of the countries I've been to so far. And I put, that had this pink princess, <laughs> Disney princess pink horns. And <laughs> it really became sort of this character in his own right, Bob did. And of course, all of the newspaper photographers always wanted a photo with Bob. And everyone knew Bob's name. Certainly no one knew my name. But they said, that's Bob. They would say, hi, Bob. <laughs> you know, and all the kids would come and surround Bob and be the horn and take their photo with him. So that's where I carried everything. And, and Bob and I were like a team and we would, you know, super easy to push. And, and it was one of the great moves that I had. And Bob is still with me. Bob is in my uh, home today. He's sort of uh, retired into a kitty bed. So Bob is still <laughs> with me. <laughs> still taking care of beings. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So I've, I've now filled him with this foam, and the, the kitties jump on top of him and take a nap. So Bob has retired happily into the kitty bed. He's quite beat up at this point, though. He certainly put some miles on. Oh, I'm sure. That's how I, I really got around and carried all my gear, and and uh, yeah, he he's, he really became a character. It's silly. And as far as where you stayed, was it a mix of camping and hotels or whoever might take you in along the way? I'm sure you ran into plenty of those people that, that said, no, you're going to sleep in my house tonight. <laughs> yeah, it really became, um, it was really a surprise, really, what happened. So, you know, at first, I'm in Colorado. And so people would put me up and they would say, oh, aren't you that girl doing that big walk and let me pay for your campground or come to my house or let me treat you to a hotel, this kind of thing. And I left them. Huh? And <laughs> and I was thinking, well, it's because they've seen it in the paper and I'm a local girl and this kind of thing. Well, then it kept continuing and it kept getting stronger and stronger. And then I thought, well, once I get to other countries, they won't hear about it and they won't know me. Well, then it got stronger and stronger in New Zealand. I not once paid for a place to stay, even a campground. People just put me up from village to village village. And then once I got into Australia, I said, oh, geez, there are vast distances between towns. My good luck is over. I'm on my own now. Well, then it got stronger than ever because I magically, one of the great moments in my life as I look back was I had, Bob and I had strolled into a small rural farming town in southern Australia and I didn't know anyone in town and was wandering around looking for a, a park to camp out in. And this woman saw me and she said, you look lost. Can I help you? And and I said, well, yeah, I was looking for the town park if you have one. And at that point, she heard my funny accent and said, where are you from? So I told her what I was doing. And she said, well, let me introduce myself. My name is Margaret and I'm the president of the local Lions Club. Uh. She says, oh, the Lions Club, I've got to get involved with this. Why don't you? come home with me tonight. And she brought me home and got me all organized with a hot shower and internet access. And in the meantime, she called all of her Lions Club buddies and said, meet us at the pub tonight. Meet us at the pub. 
because everything in a rural Australian town happens at the pub. And sure enough, we went to the pub and it's packed. And she stood up in front of everyone and introduced me. And she said, all the funds raised up Australian women. So let's show her a little Aussie spirit. And she leaned over and plucked the hat right off a guy's head and started passing this hat around. And people were throwing money into the hat. And it had made its rounds around the restaurant in the pool hall. And and the bartender counted it out and announced to everybody that we'd just raised $332 for the Breast Cancer Network Australia. And then she passed me to the next town. And their Lions Club met me at the entrance of town and said, let's go to the pub. And they took me to the pub and they took me to the next town and they passed me to the next town. And next thing you know, I was doing a 2000 mile pub crawl up the East coast of Australia. <laughs> I was just so, going to make that joke. It sounds exactly like what it was. How fun. <laughs> Isn't it? Well, it was. And you know, there really are vast distances between the towns in Australia. There's like 75 to 150 plus miles between towns. So I was planning on, in fact, camping out. And in fact, happened was the Lions Clubs got a hold of me and passed me village to village and either stayed in their homes or they would put me up at a hotel. The hotel would sponsor the night. And I not once camped out through uh, Australia. In fact, out of the five years that I was on the road, which equals 1,800-odd days, I spent 83 days camping out. Wow. And all of those days, except three of them, three of those camping out were here in Colorado by design with friends because we were in the mountains and people were driving by to walk with me and camp with me. The rest of those 80 days were all in Europe. And Europe was a surprise that I, in fact, got no support at all, which was is still one of the mysteries of my five years on the road. Huh. So, yeah, only 83 days I camped out out of five years. Otherwise, the people of the world, I sort of explain it like this human chain of people village to village putting me up all along the way and really taking care of me. And it's really quite stunning if you think about think about it like that. Yeah, that really is profound to uh, to to know that we have that that support system in our in our global society you know, on an endeavor like this. Um, you wouldn't expect that if you didn't if you didn't already hear about it from somebody else. Yeah, I did the math one day, and I just counted how many people helped me in a day, right? What do I do? <laughs> I'm killing time. <laughs> I started counting. How many people helped me, no matter what it was? Was it giving me directions? Was it, I remember one guy, when I did this one day, he, he, you know, picked up my tab at the McDonald's because they'd seen it in the paper and they saw Bob and they knew who I was and what I was doing. So, you know, one guy, you know, I said, what's the, sh-? I sort of waved a guy down in the middle of the road. I said, what's the shorter route to go? Is it to go? Right here, or you know, straight ahead. What's the? What's the? He said, "I'll be right back. I'll go measure it." <laughs> so, <laughs> went and drove like an extra twenty miles out of the out of his way just to give me direction. Anyway, it ended up being like ten people a day. Wow! Helped me out. So I did the math: ten people a day times five years is roughly twenty thousand people that helped pass me village to village and help keep me safe. 
So yeah, I, I think that's just a a great overall picture, you know, the thirty thousand foot picture of how this works. And I really think I've talked to other people who've walked across the country and such and everyone agrees that in fact people really step up and help out. And I've said I'll bet you could walk across this country or somewhere else for that matter without spending a dime. And I really bet that you could. The trick, of course, would be you can't tell people, I'm trying to walk around the world without spending a dime. Can you help me out? You can't. You know what right, I mean? That's right. the trick. So, but I'll bet you could. I'll really bet you that you could. Yeah, people really are friendly. And then, of course, yeah, I, I talk about this in the book, too, that I would experience what I was experiencing through the day, people's generosity. And, you know, there were times people would pull over and give me a gift of their area. It's like, you know, if their area was a big honey production zone and they would, here's a jar of honey for you, you know, don't forget us. Okay. That's great. And people would really help me out. And then I would get to, say, a hotel that night or someone's house and turn on the 6 o'clock news and hear about how awful the world is. And and I really felt, like, ripped off. It's like, you know, you're talking about my world, not what I'm experiencing. So I really kind of get my back up. <laughs> so uh, I I had to talk about it because, I don't know, if you really believed everything that you hear, in fact, you wouldn't leave the house. So. No, that's absolutely true. Would you like to be a guest on an upcoming show? Just go to adventuresportspodcast.com and click contact us.